This morning, we're continuing with our study of God's love. But as we continue, I think we have a couple of visitors with us. And so, Porter. How many of you know Porter? Diane Porter. Raise your hand, Diane. Diane. Diane, raise your hand so we'll know who you're. There, that's Diane Porter, everyone. But she has a couple of guests with her, so who are these people who are with you today? You know the lady who brings uh, Diane every Sunday morning? Her sister and her husband. So good to have y'all with us this morning. Good to have y'all with us. Now, the, the funny thing is, when uh, Lester Cole walked in, everybody was clapping. He looked around like this. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Sorry, Lester, it was for somebody else. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, as we continue, this will be, we did this last week. We'll do it again this week. We have just completed some understanding. Now, mark my words, some understanding of God's love as it is also a righteous love. Now, you remember what righteous means. Righteousness or right or just as applied to God as one of his essential attributes means that everything about God, everything that he does or does not do, everything is both just, which means in keeping with his revealed law, And is both right in keeping with the essence of who he is. So when God decides to do something, it is right. Eternally, absolutely, perfectly right. In any and every category, to every degree, it is what? Right. Do we get that? That's so essential if we're going to have a more biblical and accurate understanding of God's love. And so, as we talk about this, there is no real problem with saying that God's love is omnipotent. It is a powerful love. There's no real problem with saying God's love is omniscient, that God's love is an ever-knowing us in love, right? He knows us continually, completely in a loving way. There's no problem with saying that God's love is omniscient, that everywhere we go and in every circumstance, God's love remains the same. It's always with us. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. It's sovereign. It is the declaration of who he is without any successful opposition. Are we with that? That's all easy, pretty easy, you know what I mean. The rubber hits the road when we say that God's love is righteous. 
Because to say that God's love is a righteous love, that it is right in any and every category of its activity, conflicts with our own fallen, finite, fragile, failing, sinful, corrupt understanding of love. And it conflicts violently. It's not just something that's rubbed against this. Oh, excuse me, uh, Debbie, I didn't mean to bump into you and we were okay. We still, no, it is a violent opposition. So the way our natural love works, and we'll talk about this a little more extensively as we move through this. It's not just our natural love doesn't get God's kind of love, Josh. It's worse than that. It's deeper than that. Our natural love not only doesn't get it, but it rebels against it. It hates it. And so you remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples in the upper room and the Gospel of John, what does it say? The world what? Hates you. Why? Because it first hated me. And what about Jesus? Well, what's the hate in Jesus? Raises you from the dead. Gives you back your children. Walks on water. Feeds you. What's to hate about a man like that? What's to hate about him? The hatred comes in when this man declares that my love is right in all of its ways, which means that your love is wrong in all of its ways. Uh Uh-oh. Hold on there, brother. Hold on there. We like you for what you can give us, but we ain't accepting that kind of distinction. Because my love, my natural love, our human love, does not brook opposition to itself. Does not accept anything that says in any way my love is not right in itself. Are we getting, do we understand that? And so when we look at the issues that have to do with God's righteousness in us as declared in the world. It is the activity of his love, right? And when we look at that as believers, not as unbelievers, as believers, I'm assuming everyone in here is a believer, hopefully everyone is, but as a believer in Christ, one in whom the love of God has been planted by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. We have to, by the power of the Spirit, according to the revealed Word of God, we have to begin to reorient, readjust our concepts of what love is so that our concept, our concepts, our whatever about love needs to be Conform to the true love, the truth of 1 John 4, 8 and 16. God is love. And that there is nothing about him 
There is nothing about what he does or does not do. There's nothing about God that is not love. Do we see that? And so as we look at the righteousness of God and have questions, we must not allow our questions to be dictated by our feelings, by our circumstances, by what the world says. But we must bring our questions into concert with what God says about himself. There's a struggle there, correct? So do I like the idea that the world seems to be shutting down because of corona? Do you like that? Anybody likes that? And you might ask, but if God is a God of love, Darren, right? If God is a God of love, then... But you see, the mistake was in the first three words. If God is, we know that God is love. So the problem isn't, the if has no relationship to about God. It's a relationship about my understanding. Do we, are we getting this? And so we say, since God is a God of love, Whatever he allows and does not allow, I may not like it. I may not understand it. I got that. But is it right? How many of you know that's difficult? Come on. Come on. Come on. That's hard. It's difficult. And because I'm a human being, I don't like lack of understanding. I want to what? Know and understand. And so I begin to push the limits of God's revelation to me beyond what he has given to me. And as a result of that, I begin to create in my mind categories that are not truth about God. And therefore we get heresies. Do we see that? We must make sure. I'm so sorry to take too much time. Chris has a question this morning. Chris, I think we're going to get to it. But this is, but this is so basic because the answer, Chris can come back. The answer to the question that Chris is going to ask has to register and be built upon the solid fact that God is right, that he is sovereign, that what he does is perfect in any and every respect All the time. Do you believe that? And that in fact. Since it it is perfect. It cannot be any other way. Because of another way. Therefore the way he has chosen. Therefore is not perfect. What God does. Is the only way that it can be done. According to the perfection. Of the nature. And of the character of our God. Right Joey? It has to be. So do we have a platform in which to continue to answer some of these things? Because last week, Rooster asked me a question, and we began to answer it as best we can within that short period of time.
And by the way, another divergence, which means that we may not get to you, but I really want to get to your question. He may not come back if we don't ask him, you know. <laughs> Ancillary to Rooster's question last week, how does a loving God express wrath to people? Do you remember that question? If you weren't here, get online and find it. Answer. There's no way I can re-answer it the same way because I didn't have notes on it. I mean, you know, what can I say? The Lord will answer, but not whatever. But ancillary to that is this. How many of you know something about Psalm 5? God says what the Lord what hates the unrighteous. Have you read Psalm 5? Anybody read Psalm 5? So the question is, God, does God hate the sinner? I just have to say this because it has a little bit to do with what Ruth and I felt that we had a, something dangling. Did, did David, did you ask me this question or not? Some, I know you asked me a question later, but I, I don't remember what it was. So let me just make a comment or two about this. Does God hate the sinner? The typical answer of Christians is what? God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. But that's not what the Bible says. So can we stop saying that? Can we stop trying to take God off the hook? Because that's an answer which says, Adrian, I've got to protect God's love. I have to protect. So I need to say it this way, brother, because if I say it this way, you'll be okay with the answer. And the question is not whether I am okay with the answer. The question is, is the answer truth about God? You see how that begins to twist and turn us on the inside? So does God hate the sinner? Yes. I hate the righteous. It didn't say, I hate what you do. He does. But that's not what Psalm 5 says. I hate the righteous. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Good. Thank you for saying that. The unrighteous. The unrighteous. Good for Andy. These military people will keep me in line. So those of you listening to the tape, don't turn it off at that point. Let's just continue on. Well, we answered a little bit last week, and I want to go back and, and reference it one more time. The truth of the matter is, God has created all humanity, and his benevolence and his grace, and we'll have to talk about these issues of what grace is. We, I think we even have some distortion about what God's grace is and what it's not. We'll talk about that. His goodness and benevolence and kindness and care and protection, etc., provision over all the world is obvious, isn't it? We see that in the Bible. That's God's love for his creation. Therefore, God loves his creation. That means that God loves his, the people whom he has created. Do we see that first? On time, did you see that first? And so what was the question I asked Rooster last week? Do you love those who are not your own children with the same intense love and commitment that you love your own children? And the answer would be what? No. I mean, I love my neighbor. He's all right. You know, he's fine. I don't want anything bad to happen to him. 
But if my grandchildren were killed in Iraq and my neighbor was killed in Iraq, I have two def different depths of what? Emotion. Everybody with me on this? So what is the word? Why hate? I believe, I believe. Did you just hear what I said? I'm not trying to take God off the hook. But the Bible, God uses particular terminology to contrast with other concepts. How many of you have ever said, I hate this, when you didn't really hate it? Come on, how many of you done that? Only a few of you said that? Come on. How many of you said, I hate this, when it's not actually. So in comparison to something else that I love, this seems like what? Hatred. So Jesus says, unless you hate your mom and them, you cannot be what? My disciples. But yet at the same time, it says, love your parents. That's the law. So how do we do both? Well, in comparison to our love for Jesus, how we feel about our parents is to be so contrasted that it appears to be what? A hatred. Does God really want us to hate our parents? No. It is a comparison thing. And so I believe what the Lord is saying in Psalm 5 is not that he loves the sinner but not the sin. You shouldn't say that because you've just categorized love to be a universally consistent level of love that God has for sinners and saints. And that's not accurate. Jesus said in John 17, I don't pray for the world. How many of us have heard? We need to pray for the world. How many? Pray for the world. Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me out of the world. And we pray for world evangelism. We pray for the Spirit of God to go out and save his people, correct? So I think within that category, hopefully we can understand that there is a benevolent, what does the word say? That what kind of grace is it? I've forgotten the word. Say it again. Common grace. There's a common grace given to the world that maintains it. There's a common goodness of God. But then there's a particular grace that manifests the particular love that God has within himself in, to, and through his people. And compared the two, it looks as if God's love in us as compared to his benevolence for others, it looks as if it's hatred. It's such a difference, but it is a benevolence. Do we see that? So, what's your question, Chris? You have a question, brother. No. No, this is a doctor, and he is filled with words. He's not, like, he's not terse and to the point as I am. He's wordy. So bear with him. Bear with him of all the words. Yeah. Well, just read a question. So remember, I'm finite. So can you kind of simply boil this down into a... Yes and no. I'll try. So my question is from Ephesians 2.8. We're familiar with that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And 
looking at it from a human perspective is one thing, but looking at it from God's perspective is another thing. So we're saved from what? From our sin, from God's righteous opposition against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. So we're saved by God for his purposes, and we're saved by grace. But this grace can never, can never involve acceptance or ignoring of our complete unrighteousness. That grace has nothing, cannot have anything to do with that. So we're saved through faith, and faith is the conduit or the means but not the source of our salvation. So my question is, how can our perfectly amazing, glorious, righteous God impute righteousness or declare unrighteous people justified through faith? What is there about this faith that is therefore consistent with God's perfect justice and righteousness? Now, it's a good question. Now, the, the question was only four words. All the preaching in it was 272 words. I'm telling you, these people just cannot get to the point quickly. I don't know what's wrong with them. So I don't know what the question was all about at all. So, so how does faith work? Oh, now he's going to yell. Now he's going to yell. Listen to that. You see, you thought Chris Spencer was such a quiet little man. Nah. He has a loud mouth. Just ask Sue. Ask Sue. He's not like I am. Demure and quiet and unassuming. He's in your face loud. Was that Gene who said that or not? Oh. I don't remember, some of you may remember, when one of the teachings a while back, and that could be 20 years ago, but I don't think it was that long, and I don't remember, if you would tell me, I would really appreciate it. We, in the midst of a study that we were having, we took maybe a class or two to discuss works for faith and works of faith. We took a particular amount of time to try to differentiate, distinguish the operation, the activity of faith. If you can remind me of what that is or look it up, I'd be grateful for that. I just I can't do it. How does God take an unrighteous people? And Andy talked about that, you remember, using principally... What text? I don't know. Any of you remember Andy's teaching a couple of weeks ago? Tell us, Andy. Romans what? Well, one setting it up as the uh, indictment and three as the explanation of what? How God deals with us. So chapter three, probably what? Verses 21 to 26, 27, right in there. And there are several areas that we can turn to. So this is not a correction of his, it's just the Bible has several areas. And so I want to give you another reference, which we'll talk about a little bit today. And I don't know whether we need to go into this next week. I'm not opposed to that. In fact, I would not want to not go into it. 
if there's still some substantive differences or understandings. But Romans 5 is also one of those basic areas. So write down in your notes. I don't have notes for you today. Write down in your notes Romans 5. Twelve to twenty-one. I was looking at my Bible pass in. I could see the page. Anthony looked around. Where am I looking? It's on the back wall. Romans five, twelve to twenty-one. That's the answer back there. That's that's it. In Romans five, twelve to twenty-one. I think it's twenty-one. It could be twenty, but I think it's twenty-one. Paul does this, and and take a couple of notes and look this passage over. In verse twelve, Paul makes the statement. This is a theological statement. Boom, there it is. Then in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17, he enumerates, elaborates, discusses that statement in verse 12. It's a parenthetical group of verses, 13 to 17. You know what parenthetical means? It's added to it. He's going somewhere. He said, let, let me t- stop for a second. Let me come over here, give you a few explanations, and let me go back into my original thought. That's parenthetical. And so without the parenthesis, the parenthetical statement, it would be verses 12, 18, 19. And I don't remember. Do you have it with you? Is it all the way to 21? 21. Right, that's the statement. 13 to 17 is the parenthesis or the parenthetical explanation. Do we see the structure? You need to understand the structure. All of you took enough English and you remember all of these things, and therefore you can make straight A's in here. I used to teach English. I mean, I have to use it somewhere. So what is the statement of how all this came to be? Somebody read verse 12, Romans 12, 5. Somebody read it who was loud. 512, what did I say? Just don't believe me. Do what I asked you to do. <laughs> so somebody read. You see what happens when I don't have the notes in front of me? I get confused. 512, somebody read 512. Stop. Therefore, just as what? Come on, come on. You, just, you have it in front of through what? One man. What happened? Sin, end of the world. Stop. It's going to take more than today. I just feel it. Thanks a lot, Chris. Now, let's look at the word. What you don't want to do is depend upon your knowledge and understanding and ability to receive from the Holy Spirit the word of God and how it's explained, etc., and taught by relying on listening to a teacher. A teacher is a facilitator of your ability to do what is necessary. Do you get that? We're not just feeding birds here. We're together working and figuring out, sorry, receiving from the Lord how to understand his word. So what is the statement again? What's the first few words, Donnie? As what? Donnie, what's the first few words of that verse? Just as through one man Sin entered the world. Stop. Does the verse say more? But stop there. Does your Bible have a, like a little line or a comma or something? Again, Paul's saying something and then he kind of clarifies it. See what he's doing? Just as through one man, sin entered the world. Now, write in your notebooks. 
write down what verse is Paul thinking of. No, 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 don't say it. Write it down. I have said it so many times in here. What verse is Paul specifically thinking of that's in the Bible that says sin came in through one man? Just write it down. When you're ready, we'll go on. We're going one step at a time. If this is too slow for you, just take a nap. Whatever. Now, what verse did somebody put down? Genesis 3, 6. Genesis 3, 6. Now, wait. How many times have I quoted that in here? How many times do you think? How many times? Now, how many have got Genesis 3, 6 correct? Raise your hand. How many should have gotten Genesis 3, 6 correct? All of us. Now, what is that saying? I'm a teacher. What I do is not just imparting information. It's imparting information that we together can understand and gather and walk in the good of that information. Do we see that? This is not a lecture, me telling you something. It is a, it is a corporate activity of us together learning from the Holy Spirit, correct? What does Genesis 3, 6 say, the last three words? And he Eight. So write it in your notes. Who's he? Who's he? Adam. He's right next to Eve when she takes a bite of the fruit. Right next to her. He's next to her. He's not sleeping and taking a nap and coming. Ah, what have you done? He's next to her while she's holding a conversation with this serpent through whom Satan is speaking. Adam is given to have authority and leadership and guarding his wife and the place of God's garden. From this serpent, in some kind of way, Adam did not exercise his God-given authority. Remember, work and keep, guard and maintain. Remember that in Genesis 2.15. He didn't exercise his authority. Some kind of way, allowing that serpent to come into the garden because Genesis 3.1 says, and the serpent was the most crafty of all the beasts of the field. He was on the outside. He was never created to be on the inside of the garden. He came in. He didn't come in just walked in, he had to have come in through the guarding, I'm sorry, because of Adam's lack of guarding the garden. Are you with me on this? How did he get in there? How did, how did, I think this is the way he came in. Don't take so long in asking your questions next time. You gave me an opportunity. So, Next week, we're going with what I have on my paper at home. (laughs) Through how many men? As through what? One man, what? Sin. When? Genesis 3, 8. I'm saying 6, 8. Genesis 3, 6. When? Genesis 3, 6. When? Genesis 3, 6. I think... Paul had this verse with others, but I think Paul had this verse principally in mind. Why? Because this is the foundational verse for sin came into the world. How do we know it? When did it happen? What was going on? Genesis 3, 6 tells us Adam made the deliberate choice of siding with his wife against God. 
Now, that's how it happened. Any questions about that? So if I say next Sunday, what's the verse that declares sin came into the world through one man? What are we going to say? Genesis, what, 3, 6. Do you get it? So on the final exam, when I ask this, if you miss it, you fail the whole thing. You have to go back and listen to every tape whatsoever. Man, I'm going to know that verse. Now, what happened? Sin came into the world. Is that what it says? Read it again, Donnie. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Stop. As through one man, sin entered the world. Now, here's the crux of the issue. And we're almost finished the class. Remember what I said in my preparatory comments, which were purpose for this. What God has done, what he has created, the way he has declared that it is, therefore, the way that it is causes the way that it works. The way that it is causes the way that it what? Works. You have an engine in your truck, therefore it is supposed to what? Work as an engine. The principal issue is it is an engine. God has created this. Now, first of all, is it right? No answers. This is a a tough group. No. (laughs) Is it right? Yes. Do we have questions of understanding? Yeah. We may not even agree with it. Okay, I got that. But is it right? Is it not only right, therefore, is it perfect? Kevin, is it perfect? Could, yes or no? Yes. Okay, well, I don't know, Tony. Yes. Could it have been done any other way, Hemi? John. No. Why? Because that which is perfect cannot be done any other way. If it's to remain perfect, therefore you have another perfect thing, and we don't have one perfect, more perfect, most perfectest. <laughs> you remember that in your English? This is a word that can't be compared. It is of itself what it is. Perfect. Oh, my daughter's perfect. Yeah, my son's more perfect. Nah, I don't think so. We do that, but that's okay. What has God done? Take this down. God, you may write this down. God has created Adam. Now, that's including Eve, but Adam being the chief figure here. But Eve is his helper. Remember Genesis 2.18, a helper? God has created Adam as the covenantal, C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T-A-L, right? As the covenantal head or representative of the entire human race. Did you see that? God has created Adam. Now, that obviously includes Eve, Genesis 2.18, but not primarily so. God has created Adam 
what? As the what? Covenantial. You see the word covenant in there. Head or representative of what? The entire human race. That means this. Therefore, and you may continue to take notes if you like. Therefore, every human being is covenantially joined to and in Adam. By the will and work of God. Perfect. So that. Whatever Adam does. We are covenantially doing. In him. I know we're going to explain this, but it's okay. Therefore, second therefore, hmm. Adam, comma, as our covenantal head or representative, comma, just throwing some good grammar out there, Todd. Therefore, Adam, comma, as our what? Covenantal head or representative, comma, stands for and represents us in his actions so that, and make sure you underline the word so that, so that. His actions become ours also. And let me tell you something. Western culture don't like it at all. Eastern culture recognizes what we call Solidarity, community, solidarity. We don't like that. Now, that's the fact. How do I know? Monty, Donnie, sorry, would you read those words again in Romans 12, 5, 12? Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world. Ah, through one man. How many men sinned? One. When that one man sinned, he sinned as our representative. He sinned for us and on our behalf so that we are now considered partakers in his sin. Do we see that? Now, we don't sin to become sinners. We are born... As sinners, Ephesians 2, 3, children of wrath by nature. We were born that way, therefore we sin. You see, we're not condemned because we sin. 
we condemned because we are in Adam, declared as sinners. Therefore, we are sinners. God's legal declaration in Adam of our sin means that we sin. I don't sin to become a sinner. I am declared that way when? In Adam. Therefore, I have been born that way. Why? Because I have covenantally been joined into Adam with all of you. And his guilt becomes what? My guilt before a God who has sovereignly, wisely, and rightly declared this is the way it is. This is how I'm going to close. Be, be truthful. How many of you really, really like that idea? How many of you know, though, that theologically it is the best way going? And it's the only way going. We don't like the idea of being guilty in association. We are, but we're not. Because we also are guilty because we are guilty. Now, someone may say, I told you I was finished, and it's taken me a while. When you get a 747, it takes a while to stop it. We will say this, well, had I been there, Harold, there ain't no way I'd have taken a bite of that fruit. Well, really? Really? There was one man, and there was nobody, absolutely nobody other than the Lord Jesus himself, who could have been created, who would not have fallen. Did you get it? Therefore, if any of us had been Adam, what would we have done? The same thing. So next week, I think we'll have to continue with this. Thank you so much.